Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey guys, welcome to the Engadget Podcast. We're bringing back the podcast for five weeks in September as a limited run to kind of get a feel for things. This is brought to you by Verizon Wireless. I should point out Verizon is our parent company, but they have no editorial control over what we say or do on the podcast or really in any of our endeavors. So you can just kind of put your mind at ease. I'm Chris Velasco, Senior Mobile Editor. And this week, as always, I am joined by... Dana Wolman, Executive Editor. Dana, this has been a pretty interesting week for us, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, do you think we are um, tired or um, exhausted with our Apple coverage yet? I'm really tired of it. It's been a lot of Apple, Apple, Apple around here. Which is which is fine. And I know a lot of people think we're like pretty heavily biased in terms of Apple. But like, no, I'm I'm sick of this. We want to do the other things at this point. Like, I'm done. I'm done. iPhone 10, just like maybe not die in a fire, but like I'm OK to not touch you or think about you for for some so time. So to begin, of course, we had all this coverage of the Apple event last week. And then for this week... You had a review of the 8 and 8 Plus ready to go on Tuesday, mm-hmm. and that was just the beginning of it, because since then, you've taken delivery of an Apple Watch Series 3, which you were in the middle of testing. Yeah, I've got a, a pretty funky tennis ball-looking band on right now that's very comfortable, but kind of heinous-looking. Why do they always give you the oogly colors? Well, it's this. I should point out, this is not the worst. So, uh, I this is Apple's new sport loop. It's made of a nylon weave. It's very light. It's very comfortable. I took it in the shower, and it works really nicely there. But in the past, they've given me... Uh, brown watch bands, which well, generally don't look great on brown guys. So, like, way to well, but yeah. That also, one I mean, this is a digression, but your conversations with Apple's reviews team have been like, Chris, which color would you like? And you're like, I'd like navy, or I'd like black. And they're like, Here is Ecru. You will have the Ecru. <laughs> <laughs> I would like a nice subtle color. No, you're gonna look like an idiot. Yeah. Um. So we have the Apple Watch and then we also just yesterday received the Apple TV 4K and we have a hands-on up in the site as of today but um we still have a full review coming of both the Apple TV and the Apple Watch coming next week. Yeah, so lots of Apple stuff sort of finally and iOS 11. And iOS 11 which we did run our full review of the same day we ran our iPhone review. So if you guys haven't yet, please go check them out. I think we, we poured a ton of work into them, and I think they get to the heart of the matters, I think, pretty well. So definitely take a few minutes to do that. But Dana, really quick, what's are you are you just done? Like, are we good? Can we stop talking about Apple for a while now? Um, yes, but that just means talking a lot about Google, which we will also do um, in the half hour that we're gathered today. Yes, Google and HTC have had by far the most interesting week. Although Apple is kind of up there because of that whole like LTE connectivity, Wi-Fi situation thing with the Apple Watch Series 3. Oh, guys. At some point, hopefully this holiday season, there will be room for us to talk about other companies, maybe even smaller, more inventive companies. 
Um, but for today, it's a lot of Apple and Google stuff. So let's just start at the top, right? So we did the iPhone 8 and 8 Plus review. I personally handled that. I think they're very good phones. I, don't I think just want to say, and this isn't just me kissing your ass here, but um, the tone of your review is slightly different from the other reviewers. I don't think you disagreed in terms of the nuts and bolts of how good the phone was, but I thought your review was so much less snotty than some of the other reviews I read. <laughs> what is what does that mean? I to be fair, I haven't really read other people's reviews. I try not to read, generally, just to like not influence the way I look at these things. But I've read other reviews, and I've also just been following um, the conversation among our peers in the tech press on Twitter. And I do I think snotty is a good word for it. I think that so much of the conversation has been, well, we can't recommend the iPhone eight or eight plus. Just don't buy it. And I don't think that applies to nearly everyone. I think certainly for people in our peer group, a lot of us are going to buy the iPhone 10. Um, and I think for people who consider themselves early adopters, the iPhone 10 will be the phone to buy. It will be a status symbol even. Right. But I don't think that describes um, nearly all of the potential people looking to buy a new iPhone. Yeah, I mean, when I write reviews, I try to have a very broad sort of understanding of, of people in mind. And, like, you're absolutely right. Like, I will probably, I don't know that I would pay for an iPhone ten, but I will be using one for at least a little while. I think you might be an iPhone ten person, personally. I might be. I mean, I'm, I'm ambivalent about Face ID. I've said this on the podcast before, and I would prefer a smaller phone. But for me, uh, for me, the, the, the scales might be tipped in favor of the iPhone ten. But, you know, if someone... Um, did choose to buy the iPhone 8, let's say, because it's smaller or because it was less expensive or because they weren't ready to give up the home button. I think those are all good reasons to buy the 8 or 8 Plus. Not the small thing. Obviously, the 8 Plus is a big honking phone. Right. But I, I think those are all fine reasons to buy one of those two phones. And anyone who does buy those phones will be will know what they're getting. And what they're getting is still an excellent phone. Yes, they'll still be very, very well served. And that's... There's no oh. reason to shit on it. Excuse me. There's no reason to knock it. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to we're going to keep that. That's that's totally accurate. Um no, I think you're absolutely right. The iPhone 8 and 8 Plus, they like the iPhone 10 has and will continue to suck all the air out of the room for probably the next few years, but realistically speaking, if you have an iPhone right now, if you've got a 7 or a 7 Plus, like maybe hold off, you're probably fine, but if you have anything older than that and it's really kind of getting to you, like don't worry. The 8 and 8 Plus will get you like 85 to 90 percent of where you need to go if you're thinking about the iPhone X like it's all there the fundamentals are incredibly sound what I would say too is that of the things you didn't like about these phones one of them was the fact that the design is a little bit stale which will bother some people more than others some right. people won't be bothered by it and you were bothered by the fact that um, the por some of the portrait lighting modes needed work the results were sort of hit or miss and other reviewers noticed this also mm -hmm. but if the Basically, unless Apple makes improvements um, to the software before the iPhone 10 launches in early November, the iPhone 10 is likely to present some of the same drawbacks, at least as far as portrait photography is concerned. So, yeah, that's I, I would not be surprised at all. So just to be clear, when you purchase an 8 Plus and start working with portrait lighting, it's still very firmly in beta. So if you buy an iPhone 10 in November, I would not be surprised if Apple has sort of worked things out to a point where they're ready to call it a final feature. That's not a lot of time, honestly speaking, considering the issues that I've run into. Like, it is very bad sometimes at picking out the the background from you. And, like, that's normally not a huge problem because if you're just sort of blurring it, like, fine, whatever. But if you use, like, 
studio light mono or or stage light or whatever that sort of blackout feature is called that is that's where things really get hairy there's like patches behind you that are also in focus and like it's sometimes like i have a photo of you that has like a good chunk of your head just cut out because the phone didn't know what to do with it you know and it's there's been a really big disconnect for me because we saw some really fantastic sample photos at apple's keynote um last week and those were shot by professional photographers they were obviously curated and heavily vetted by apple's team that put on the presentation and then to go on Twitter and just see all the early reviewers trading poorly done portrait shots, there's a really big disconnect for me between what we, in a sense, everyday people have been capable of and the professionals who Apple selected for its its presentation. Well, I mean, I not to take Apple's side too strongly on this one, but like I, I sort of understand their intent in trying to sell the potential of the feature versus what it is now, which, to be clear, like they've been very upfront about it. It's not ready yet. It's not done. So, I mean, I can't blame Apple for that, but yeah, like the, the, the feature as it stands now inspires zero confidence. Like I, I don't it's a use it anymore. Line, which, you know, I know Apple has made mistakes in its products before. In fact, we're going to talk about the Apple watch three soon enough mm-hmm. and it's LTE connectivity issues. But what seemed a little unusual to me, and you, you can speak to this as a frequent reviewer of Apple products is for Apple to put out a product for reviewers and be sort of upfront about the fact that one of the marquee features is in beta seems unusual for them. Normally it's, it's, I think they'd sooner release a feature later as part of a a further software update if it weren't ready, which is what they're doing with peer to peer payments in iOS 11. Mm -hmm. So it's unusual to see Apple release a feature in sort of this half baked in between state. I haven't really seen them do that that much. Well, so the only real, analog I can think of is the original portrait mode, which launched as a beta feature as well. So it's it's been interesting to kind of see them change their approach with certain features. So Apple Pay uh, via messages, I, th- I think, is a great example of Apple looking at something and saying, OK, this is probably close to ready. I've seen some demos that are obviously can, but they seem to work just fine. But when you have people's money involved, when you have their like you you're issued like an Apple pay card and that's tied to a bank account and like all of these moving parts that have to work together perfectly. Like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Like don't F around with people's money. Uh, if Apple like pushing out a feature like portrait lighting or even portrait mode last year in beta is, is pretty low risk realistically. Like, Oh, your, your photo like doesn't look as great as it will in a couple months. Eh, okay. Come to think of it. I'm remembering now that at this time last year, Apple gave reviewers pre-production units of the the um, AirPods. Yes. And then the rev- early reviews came out. They were like, well, this, th- this thing has problems. And that was a complicated situation because Apple gave reviewers its blessing to review the thing, but the thing they were giving us was unfinished. Yeah. And, and that, that was also unlike them. That was a really strange process for me because, again, we were given the go-ahead to review this thing. Um, I personally stand by every word. Like, my original review was published with those pre-production AirPods and I stand by everything I said because my criticisms were more, they had more to do with like, why, why do these exist rather than actual technical issues I had because the pair I had back then and the pair I have right now work absolutely the same. Like I might've had, I might've honestly gotten the one perfectly okay pair of AirPods out of that entire batch. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of iPhone stuff that's finally coming to an end, although that's going to crest again as we approach November in the iPhone 10. but Apple Watch Series 3 has had some issues too. 
Yeah. So um, a couple of early reviewers have reported LTE connectivity issues. It's so, yes, that is, they, yes, that is correct. And I think Apple tried to get out in front of it after those reviews went live. I have it on pretty good authority that it's not actually an LTE thing. It's, it's an issue with how certain networks get flagged for use on your Apple Watch. So if you haven't used an Apple Watch before, you connect it to your iPhone. It shares uh, sort of a database of wireless networks, Wi-Fi networks, essentially, that it thinks it can use. And the iPhone, uh, to my knowledge, has done very well. Like if you use an iPhone like exclusively and that's the only Apple thing you have that you use with your watch, then you're fine. Like the iPhone does not inappropriately flag networks. But I have heard that OS 10 is sort of the issue here. So there's a bug somewhere that causes captive networks. So if you're at a Starbucks or a Panera Bread, you know the Wi-Fi networks where you connect to it. And then there's like an interstitial where you have to accept the terms or like type in or whatever. That seems to be the issue. And iOS, excuse me, OS 10 doesn't always flag those correctly. So the Apple Watch thinks, oh, hey, OS 10 says I can use these just fine. Let's do it. But it never actually gets past the interstitial because you can't interface with it at all. So it's trying futilely to connect to a network that it cannot get past. This is a pretty big miss. I mean, I appreciate that a fix is coming and that it's at least an issue that can be addressed through a software update as opposed to like it being inherent to the hardware. Right. But this is one of the marquee features, the LTE connectivity. And if it doesn't work reliably, that's kind of a big, big boo-boo yeah i mean to be clear it's the lte in this case it has its own issues it's it's not great for other reasons but the lte has very little bearing on this like from what i from my understanding is that this is a pretty long-standing bug like this has been a thing for a while but since you're sort of out there in the world now with a watch that tries to connect to a bunch of things in addition to lte the problem is just a little more public right now yeah it's just you know we're not professional quality control experts us reviewers we're just people who test products and write about it and it's amazing that a bunch of the early reviewers caught it and um apple said at least they told the wall street journal that they hadn't been aware of these issues either either they were lying or they just missed a really crucial obvious flaw in the product which also would be a problem right so but i think all told i have a bigger problem with the lying and the, the what I see as as and um, do you think of it as lying? Do you think of it in such harsh terms? Um, like Apple has said uh, that I, I'll say this. I mean, I, I take issue. I don't know if I want to use the word lie. I take issue a little bit with Apple's response. You said they got out in front of it. I sort of see it a little differently. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on which reporter they spoke to, I know that they told Lauren Good at The Verge that a fix was coming, which is the kind of information that you want to tell a reporter and helps a reporter accurate, you know, do their job, which is just tell an accurate story. But, you know, Joanna at Joanna Stern at The Wall Street Journal asked the same question, and they said something like, um, uh, we haven't seen this issue in our testing um, you know, we're looking into it, which they may or may not have seen in their own testing. But by that point, it was obvious that other reviewers had been bringing to them the same issues. Yeah. Um, so it, it, I thought that was almost the more damning thing than the LTE problems itself. The fact that Apple um, um, wasn't very forthcoming or completely forthcoming with reviewers about this. Yeah. And I think that strikes at a very interesting conundrum for companies like Apple when something does go wrong. And like, I've experienced this myself during the, the reviews process so mm-hmm. that this sort of rang familiar to me. Gotcha. I mean, 
like this, like I said, strikes at a pretty interesting issue. It, and it's when you're a company like Apple and things go wrong, like, is it better to be proactive and just say, hey, guys, we did something wrong. We're going to fix it and just go live with that immediately. Or do you kind of catch yourself, take the time to try and figure it out and say, we, ha- we haven't noticed this, which I believe to be true, but we're not going to say anything until we actually know what's going on. Right. Well, I think there's there's um, it's a really delicate balance. Mm. Um, you know, I think if Apple's response is too conservative, I think you are implying somehow that either the reviewer has a lemon or that they've done something to produce an unusual issue. Yeah. There's and a bit of gaslighting involved with this stuff. Like I've definitely reviewed that- things before where like things are not working correctly. I'm pretty sure I'm not doing anything wrong. And then like there's the back and forth. There's like nine or ten emails before you actually get a replacement unit. And it turns out, yeah, you're actually right the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I will say that when I reviewed the first MacBook Pro with a touch bar, the battery life for me was falling short of expectations. And Wasn't that the case for, like, everybody, though? It, event, as I discovered, but I contacted Apple and I said, hey, you know, this doesn't match the rated battery life. And we had a lot of back and forth. And during that conversation, they said that they were surprised that um, this wasn't something they were seeing or that other reviewers were, were reporting. But sure enough, all the, you know, those early reviews came out and other reporters also were having issue with battery life, um, which it wasn't their job to tell me that. It wasn't their PR team's job to tell me that. But if they knew that, why all the theater of um, having me check my settings and uh, run the test differently? The results are going to be the same. The battery yeah. life just isn't going to be that great. <laughs> and you know that because the other reviewers are saying the same thing. So anyway, I, I, I did not appreciate that part of the experience. And when I saw Apple's response to the LTE issue in this case, um, it rang familiar to me. All right. And I think that's a pretty good spot to take a break. We will be right back. Yeah. It's that time of year again. The iPhone you've really, really been waiting for is now available on the nation's largest, most reliable 4G LTE network. Head over to your nearest Verizon wireless store or order online today. Okay, and we're back. This is the Engadget Podcast. I'm Chris Velasco. And I am Dana Wallman. We are, I think we're done with Apple Talk. I think we can officially wash our hands of Apple. And let's just, now that our hands are clean, let's pick up another um, big... Um, ubiquitous company. So Google recently announced that it was entering a partnership, a mutual agreement with HTC for $1.1 billion in which 2,000 HTC design and research staffers would become Googlers, and they also get uh, a non-exclusive license to use some of HTC's intellectual property. This is huge! Oh my god, HTC! It's it's huge, and it also um, has some shades of deja vu. I want to credit um, our industry peer, Christina Warren here, formerly of Gizmodo and Mashable. But she, I saw her tweet earlier and she made a good point that um, this seemed like a good idea, but we also said the same thing about Google and Motorola. Right. And I, I do also think with the hindsight that we have now, I do also think the Google and Motorola thing was a good idea. I just think Google wasn't in the right mindset to kind of execute super, super well. And, and let me sort of explain Back then, I think one of the big issues Google had in trying to develop its own stuff was the Nexus line had been a thing for a while. Those were doing relatively well, but they were very niche. Like if you weren't a super hardcore Android fan, the appeal was pretty limited for you. 
So you'd have companies like Motorola and Samsung really kind of dominating the Android conversation. So when Google buys Motorola, it's then like it's got Rick Osterloh. It's got an amazing team of designers, an incredible legacy of good, good products. But they're also left with the conundrum, which is, okay. now that we've officially gotten into this ring with a subsidiary that does everything we needed to. How do we not piss off? everyone else who uses our software and works very closely with us and sort of helps Android become more popular and more uh, widely spread. They had a lot of trouble, I think, trying to, f- to strike that balance there. And because of that, their Moto efforts maybe were never as strong as they could have been. They made very good phones, to be absolutely clear. But it seemed for a long time that Google kind of didn't know how Motorola fit into its larger framework. Right. So what will be different this time with HTC? Well, I think the biggest thing to kind of keep in mind now is that Google's straight up in this game now, right? So the Nexuses were a thing, but the Pixels are the first phones that Google has really kind of marked as its own. They they run stock-ish Android, but Google, I think, pretty clearly understands that Android itself, stock Android, flat, completely pure Android, is not going to drive sales for a lot of people. So they understand that the experiences, the software features, the stuff that really kind of helps you get stuff done is what matters. And the Pixel was a great example of very good hardware from HTC blended with Google's Android expertise and their ability to offer features like auto HDR and Google Assistant, which was still relatively new at the time, to kind of come together and work in ways that just felt seamless. So TLDR, it makes more sense now for Google to acquire intellectual property and bring over some HTC employees rather than have a wholly owned subsidiary like Motorola, which was run by its own group of people. Right. So I read a piece recently where Johnny Ive was sort of talking about the new spaceship campus. And there's a lot of just sort of like generic whatever, like it's a beautiful space and all that stuff. But he struck at something very important to this conversation, which is the idea that he could physically walk out of his office and walk down the hall and like talk to someone working on camera optics and then like battery stuff. So the ability for one person in one building to have their fingers in all of these separate domains very easily makes the overall product that much better. You're able to sort of work more closely and kind of get a more polished device right out the door. And Google hasn't really been able to do that with Nexus. They were always just like, okay, we'll work with you on hardware and design, but like, just go make it. Here's the software. Just kind of have fun. This is a step towards vertical integration that Google has never really gone with before, unless you think of like Nest, which I don't think is a great example, but this is going to be, this is sort of poised to make Google a more straight up Apple competitor. Like they are in the game now and they're gunning for Apple's premium quality. They're gunning for that sort of overall level of polish that doesn't always come through on Android devices and Google has final say now. So like they, I think, are going to be able to put out some really incredible stuff as a result of these really close relationships. Interesting. And that's to say nothing. Um of the products that are coming in just a couple weeks. Right. So we have the Google event in San Francisco on October 4th. And just seriously, like real, real shout out to the guys at Droid Life. They got everything. They found everything. So they've got the Pixel 2. They've got the Pixel 2 XL. They've got the new smaller Google Home. Super, super good scoops. I'm really jealous, but good work, guys. Uh, Yeah, these are some pretty impressive looking phones, particularly the XL, I think. Right. So it's available in two different hues. There's a black and white model, which, which looks the best, which it is. I don't say this often because I, I think it's kind of awful, but I firmly believe that it is fire. 
I disagree in part because it is clearly a visual pun for Oreo. And I don't like puns. Even what? What? Dana, what? You know, I don't like puns. And yes, it's, it's, it's an Oreo, black, white, not yes, like a sure, sandwich sure. Oreo, but I mean, like, sure, fine. But also the, the harshness of black and white color blocking has not been my favorite motif even in clothing or any other category, but oh, to each his own, I would fair. sooner buy the all black pixel two that um, pixel two XL that was leaked. Well, I guess it probably says everything that I literally wear only black and white all of the time forever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that makes sense. So the pixel two is the device that's going to be made by HTC. The pixel two XL is the LG device, which is bigger and frankly, just beautiful. Google home is pretty interesting looking now as well. It's not this like potpourri, looking thing i i have one at home and it kind of looks like a like an aroma diffuser like it's if you had like a couple sticks like wooden sticks sticking out of it it would look like something that would make your house smell nice well so far we've seen um the smaller device probably priced around 49 dollars. that's going to compete with the with amazon's echo dot mm-hmm. um but that wouldn't directly replace the existing google home right it would just sort of be a supplementary cheaper option which is fine and totally understandable given the climate that we're looking at in this market but i don't know there is there is one thing that we should point out that we actually didn't address at the top what do you think of this new chromebook um the pixel book yes as it's called oh boy so our our colleague nathan ingram is out on vacation this week and it's particularly ironic that he's not here because he might be the only chromebook user he's, in america he's the biggest chromebook apologist on the Engadget staff. <laughs> but but in fairness, I could I could imagine how excited he would be if he were in the office sort of taking this in for the first time. And I don't think that's unwarranted. This is, as far as, as, far as Chromebooks go, pretty effing fascinating. It's an interesting narrative arc here because for a while we thought the Pixel line was dead. And a lot of people would have said that was a good idea just given how expensive the Pixel always was. And here we're... Bear in mind, these were like fifteen, sixteen hundred $1,600 machines, right? Right, but this is still, I think... The rumored starting price is what, around fourteen ninety nine? Yeah. Yeah. So it's still an expensive machine, now in the same pricing territory as um even above actually. It's 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 more expensive than the than Microsoft Surface laptop. So as ever, it has some high profile competition. And so it's just interesting that for a while we thought the Pixel was dead. It's not dead at all. The name still exists. The price and value proposition still exists and google has the same challenge to convince people that a chrome os machine at that price is worth choosing over a similar machine running os 10 or excuse me mac os or windows i sorry i I do that mac os os 10 thing constantly and i think it's really interesting because we've had pretty low-cost Chromebook devices for a long time now, and they generally fail to inspire inspiration and sort of confidence from a lot of people. They're good, but they're cheap. Like, you, you get exactly what you pay for, and it's basically that. The Pixel Book, though, looks super, super nice, which is, to be fair, a hallmark of the Chromebook Pixel line. I just, I don't, I don't get it. Like, I want it, and I might get it, but I don't get it. You know what I mean? Like, why, what, what do you think Google stands to gain by going the more premium route again when that didn't really seem to work so great the first time. I'm not totally sure. I mean, on principle, I understand Google wanting to establish itself as a maker of high quality hardware, but it's already done that. It's already proven it can do that. And it's still doing that with other categories, including smartphones. Um, 
why Chromebooks need to be in that category, um, I still don't get it myself. Well, so you might have a little bit more insight into this than I do. I obviously do mostly the phone stuff and Engadget, but do you think there are some interesting parallels to be drawn between sort of Windows 10 S and Chrome OS? Like, could you could you feasibly like Windows 10 is is locked down, but still Windows, right? So you can still run applications. You're getting them from the store, but whatever. But Chrome OS, like, what do you what is what does one get done on that? I, I had one that I used for writing, and it was you great get for a that. Lot done. I mean, it's been interesting over the years to review different Chromebooks because the experience has changed a bit over the years, and certainly it's it's improved. And I can do more than when I first reviewed the first Chromebook in I think 2011. So the experience has improved. And I want to say that when I review the, one of the Chromebook Pixels, maybe it was even the second generation one, mm-hmm. the last I did it, I was tempted to buy one. I mean, as, a, as just a user experience, software side even, it was great. It had a great screen, great keyboard, great trackpad. So all the things that a laptop maker needs to get right, Google was getting right. Um, and I could do most of what I needed to do on Chrome OS, I think there were enough little exceptions, at least for my workflow, mm-hmm. that it wouldn't have been a realistic choice. Now, will that be true of other people? Maybe not. All right. So here's the thought. So Google has been reportedly working on this OS called Andromeda for a while now. It is supposed to be, some have referred to it perhaps jokingly as a super OS, where you've got the best elements of Android and Chrome OS sort of working together in a way that sort of thrives on more traditional kind of machines. And I wonder if the Pixelbook isn't just sort of a Trojan horse, so they would build a Chromebook with a beautiful body and try and sell it and make some money off of that, but also just kind of hone their skill in building a more traditional kind of laptop for, for future use with Andromeda. That would certainly make sense if and when the company reveals the thing, right? I mean, for now, all we know is is this is what's coming, and we know Chrome OS as it is, and we have heard about the value proposition as it's evolved for years now. And um, so we, we've, I think had plenty, I, we, I think we've had plenty of time to discuss and debate the sense of selling and buying a $1,500 Chrome OS machine. Will Andromeda change the story? Who knows? I mean, it will be interested to see it, of course, but. Yeah. I, I don't actually expect Google to do this, but like, man, what if we roll into this event on October 4th and they do Pixel 2 and Pixel 2 XL and the Pixel Book and Google Home? And all right, thanks, guys. Thanks for coming. Really appreciate your time. Go enjoy your hands-on uh, Go enjoy your hands-on time. But also, hey, hold on. Andromeda. It's coming. I mean, fortunately, the one more thing is really strictly or almost strictly an Apple phenomenon. I know. I know. A guy can dream, right? A guy can dream that like some super baller announcement would just drop at the, at the end of a thing. Although I don't trust Google to keep secrets that well. As much as we might like and enjoy and appreciate gadgets and, and new technology, I think as reporters, we can agree that one more thing moments are not so fun. The best. Surprises. We don't like surprises as reporters. It makes our jobs harder. Yeah, but it also makes our job fun. Like that's the fun part. It makes it fun for readers. It makes it fun for everybody. I love rolling into an event and like knowing most of it, and then they just pull something out. Motorola did this in Mobile World Congress. They were like, hey, check out these new phones. We're going to tell you about them slightly in advance so you know, what to, you know what's coming. And then you show up, and they're like, yeah, all of these new phones, Moto G5, Moto G5 Plus, great phones, same camera as the Galaxy S7. They're really great. Also, Alexa, 
We're just going to drop some Alexa on you. Like, it's not unprecedented. I think this is our two personality types in a nutshell. And I think if we were in an odd couple reboot, um, I think I know which roommate I'd be. I, I don't. I, who, who? I'm Jack Lemon, and you're Walter Matthau. Walter Matthau in The Odd Couple would Isn't probably... Isn't he the grump? He looks grumpy. He's the sloppy, less predictable one who would probably enjoy surprises at Apple and Google yep, press okay. events. Yep, sloppy and unpredictable. That's me. Jack Lemon would be the one who's grumpy about stuff happening that wasn't planned. See, my issue was I was thinking of Walter Matthau and Dennis the Menace, which is like the only movie I ever remember seeing him in growing up. But also that's... me. Okay. All right. Well, okay, fine. Anyway, that has been the Engadget Podcast. I am Walter Matthau. And I'm Jack Lemon. <laughs> but seriously, I'm Chris Velasco. You can grab me on Twitter at Chris Velasco. You can find me on Twitter at Dana Wallman. We've got one more episode of this five-episode run to go. That'll be coming at you next week. We might have another host. You might, you might not be here with me, Dana. I might not. The, the voice in this microphone might be Terry O'Brien. It might be gruffer, more tired, but ultimately maybe... More fatherly. More fatherly, more fulfilled, just happy. I don't know. I don't know. Child, children do strange things to people, but he might be back. We'll see how it goes. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Ciao.